Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11, you'll see that we um, are going through today a little bit more than we normally do. If you're new with us today, we've been doing an ongoing study through the books of Ezra, then Esther, and now Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to do a big chunk today, 176 names. I'm not going to read through them all. But uh, we will begin with prayer and then pull out several different applications that I believe are here for us today, things that uh, we need to understand and things that we need to know. So we're going to begin with prayer and uh, then an introduction, get right into the study of Nehemiah chapter 11. And uh, uh, before we do that, as we pray, one of the things that we've been trying to do as we learn from our study in the book of uh, Nehemiah, we found that the people of God, after they read the Word of God and they were confronted with it and, and uh, came to a realization of who He is and His wonder and His glory and then who they really were, uh, they were about the business of confessing of and repenting from their sins. And so we have been doing that uh, the last several weeks or so, and I think it is a good exercise for us to do to clear the pipes. We know that we're forgiven, but if there is any backlog of things that has been going on this week in your life, it's good to take a few moments and just come before the Lord, confess those sins to Him, look to the gospel for the forgiveness that we always have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Join me in prayer, and uh, we will do that. Father, we praise your holy name. Thank you for allowing us to adore you with the music that we've been singing. Thank you that out of that, that deep adoration for who you are, we come to a place, and I hope this is true of each of us, that we can look back during this week, maybe even this morning, we can find ways in which we have come short of your glory. We have sinned against you. We realize again that those sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. That's a gospel promise. But Father, we also realize that it's good for us to come as the people of God and not just sing praises of adoration, but to confess. And so for these few moments, I pray that we would do that. Now, Father, we pray that our hearts would be eager to hear your word that our minds uh, would be responsive to what you say to us, and that we will leave this place knowing what we need to do and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, the last couple of weeks have been a great challenge for me, preaching through a massive list of mostly unpronounceable names 
is a little bit like walking through a cemetery. Now, I don't know that any of you have done that lately, or any of you really have occasion to do that. I do, probably uniquely because of my role as a pastor. Uh, there are times when I go to a cemetery and we inter a, a body of a beloved saint, and uh, particularly when I am in an older cemetery or an older part of a cemetery, I have occasion to walk by these headstones and maybe even just a, a cross with a name that is almost, it's almost rubbed out. You can't see it. And I begin to think to myself, you know, that person, I'll always look at the dates, you know, like some of them are back in the 1800s, early 1900s. And I realize, I think consciously to myself, that person in that grave meant something to someone at one time. They had a life. I don't know what they did. They lived it. They grew up. If they're an adult, they probably were married. Sometimes their spouse is right next to them. They probably had kids and all the rest of that. And they were just trying to live life in another generation like you and I are trying to live life. Now, here is the interesting thing that I realize that for most of them, even their own descendants don't know who they are. And you just test that out on yourself. I ask this question a lot to individuals. If you can remember the names of your great-grandparents, you are an anomaly. And so here is Nehemiah with a list of names, mostly unknown to us. And he's trying to teach us a lesson from this list of names. Now, let me go back and review and particularly for those of you who have not been with us before, I'll just do a broad sweep in uh, the, the, all of what we've gone through. The situation in Nehemiah chapter 11 is the story of God's plan to repopulate Jerusalem, okay? That's where we are today. You remember that the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, and they were brought back by Ezra originally into what is called the holy city. Now, I want you to hang on to that word. It's called the holy city, Jerusalem. The temple had been built under Ezra. And then with the return of Nehemiah, the gates and the walls had been completed. But we find these words, and you can just take my word for it. You don't have to go back to this passage of Scripture, but in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And so last week, we saw a list of names in chapter 10. Chapter 10, I, I think some of you might remember that there were 84 names. Now get this, in chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 26, there are 176 names. That's one of the reasons that I chose not to read through this passage of Scripture. Now, while they had a variety of roles, I really encourage you to go back and read. We'll, we'll pick out some verses and look at those. 
But I encourage you to just go back and read and read through all of those names. They had a variety of different roles. We'll talk about some of those. But they had one thing in common that the list last week had in common as well. Does anybody remember what that one thing in common that they had? They are all men. Hmm. Now, I talked about this last week. It was a great time for me to be able to speak from God's Word to those men in our congregation, those men listening at home, and to remind us that God has given us a unique position in His kingdom work. And we continue, 176 names of men all doing what they were designed to do, and that is to lead in at least four different ways that I think are instructive to us today. Now, this doesn't mean, because I've just said that this is primarily to men, that you women and you young women, older women, and everybody else, if you're not a man, that you can just kind of turn this off and not listen. Because the principles of leadership found in the things that we're going to talk about today also apply to everyone in this room. Everyone is a leader. Moms, you you lead, right? Grandmothers, you lead. Older sisters, you lead. And so this applies to everyone across the board. Leadership and followership, yes, that's a word, are clearly taught in Scripture for every believer to understand. Now, there's one more thing, a preliminary comment before we get into the first uh, application of these things that we'll be going through, that Nehemiah wanted Israel to be reminded, and boy, this jumped out at me, to be reminded of the spiritual heritage of those who had gone on before. And I had these thoughts, uh, and I think, Jim, you alluded to this a few moments ago, but I began to go back through the history of heritage. And for those of you, again, who are brand new to heritage or, or you've been here only a short amount of time, I just want to share with you that sometimes it's good for us to stop and remember our heritage. This church was started in 1982. We've been in 1980, rather. We've been here 42 years. And in that time, there have been three preaching or teaching pastors. Now, that is a little bit of a record, I think. Some of you may not realize that. Jim Burleson was the first pastor of this church. He was here five years give or take and then he left and uh, Bill Stewart I believe came in as an interim pastor and then uh, through a series of events providence the providence of God this church called Dan Maxwell to come and the church exploded in growth numerical growth under Dan Maxwell and then he left after about 13 years Uh, there was a young man rather skinny 
with a booming, deep voice that came in as the interim pastor. Some of you remember James Langford, our senator. He, you didn't know that, some of you. He was our interim pastor, and then they called me, and I've been here 17 years. And I started thinking back. Now, hear me. Just like in the book of Nehemiah chapter 11, we're going to see this. Every man, and, and I'll, I'll expand it to the, the, the other staff too, because we have, we have a long tenured staff. I think uh, uh, Eric Schrock was here in the 1800s and uh, <laughs> recently went into a part-time kind of, uh, of a situation. Rocky followed him. I, we, we've got, uh, uh, I don't know, well, well over 100 years in combined ministry service with uh, staff that has been here. And, 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 you know, we need to go back and look at our spiritual heritage. How did we get to where we are today? Through flawed men. Did you hear that? None of the men who have led or who are currently leading are perfect. And sometimes we forget that, and sometimes we move on without looking back and saying, Lord, thank you for doing what you have done to bring us to this place. Now, that was just kind of a freebie. But I see that as a part of the application of what Nehemiah, what God, <laughs> through Nehemiah, is trying to teach us in this passage of Scripture. So, let's go on to the first point. You'll see several points there. And uh, here they are. Leaders, this is all about leadership. So, this is for everyone, no matter what your age. Leaders commit to lead by example. They are willing workers and they are, get this, notable nobodies. I almost titled the sermon that. Notable nobodies. Or in praise of plodders or in honor of the ordinary, leaders commit to lead by example. We'll look at several of the scriptures that are found there. Look at, look at verse 1. This, this is a, a great passage of scripture. What is God doing in the world today? Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, okay? The leaders are already there. This is the primary leadership of Nehemiah and the group around him. And the rest of the people cast lots. We, we've talked about this before. In case you're not familiar with what happened here, the lot was a kind of die, kind of like dice, okay? And they would throw the dice and they would try to discover or discern God's will, what's going on. So they cast lots to bring one out of ten. Do you find that interesting? Do you remember what I preached last week? I preached about stewardship. That was one of the things that I preached about, the tithe. I find it interesting that when they cast lots, they were tithing the people to come and live in the city of Jerusalem. So one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, here it is, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. We'll just stop right here. What is God doing in the world today? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's building his church. Just like he did then, he was building the people of God. And just as God was building the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, 
Jesus is now building his church. Now, I want to show you a flow of historical thought. Jerusalem, the holy city, there is going to be another day where the holy city is going to come into play again. And guess what that holy city is? It's none other than the church, the bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first Heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. His church, universal and eternal, and local churches like ours and like other churches throughout the city and the state and the nation and the world made up of insignificant and seemingly sometimes weak men and women is being built together into the holy city someday to be married to the bridegroom and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, going back to the the lots were cast. We, we've uh, shown this verse many, many times. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision belongs to the Lord. Let me help you on your focus here. The focus is not on the lot cast into the lap. The focus is upon what we can trust, that every decision is from the Lord. They weren't playing a game. This was not a board game, kids where they were rolling dice or playing cards to come up. But this was how they were going to determine this is what God is going to say to us. No luck, no chance here, but a strong belief in God's sovereignty and His providence. Because God knows what is best. Now, if I were to update that, this is a reminder that I often need in light of all that is going on in, in our world. Now, sometimes we just look at our city and our state and our nation and we stop there. There's a lot going on in the world today. But I have to remind myself of this fact that God is sovereign and His providence is in control of our situation, even in our own country. In fact, I just re worded this little proverb to say it like this, the vote is cast in the ballot box, but the election is determined by the Lord. I heard a couple of amens. There, there's just so much craziness, but God is in control. If, if you don't believe that, how in the world can you get to Romans 8.28 for your own situation? We know, I, I like the way the New American Standard says it, it's even uh, more precise than in the New the, the ESV, the Eng, English Standard Version. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Wow, this is not a, this is not a general quote that you see on a coffee cup for anybody to pick up and buy. This is a promise to believers in Jesus Christ. We know that God causes all things to work together for those, for good, for those who are loved by God. 
to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, the issue here is whether or not you believe that God is God and that God is good. And that's something that I have tried to hammer on with you and with individuals that I talk with over and over and over again. As our starting point, we have to believe that God is God and that he is good. Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to the Lord. He is large and in charge, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And and here's the thing. See, it really doesn't matter whether or not you believe this. It's still true. But if you do believe it, it can give you incredible confidence that God Listen to me, some of you who are going through some very specific things, that God is up to something when everything in your sphere of life seems to be going out of control. Let me be quick to say that not everything that happens makes God happy, but nothing happens without His permission. Now, verse 2, let's look at that just very, very quickly. And the people blessed, now this is a different group. We've already seen that they cast lots, and they got 10% of the people in the outlying villages, which was an incredible feat. And they, they came in and they lived in Jerusalem. But there was another group. Now, watch this. This is even more incredible. And, they, and the people blessed all the men. Now, this is not to exclude their families But the men were leading their families to do something that got them way out of their comfort zone. The people blessed all of the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So some of the men, apart from the lottery... When I was preparing this, I immediately thought back to my younger days, post-high school, first year in college, when we had the Vietnam lottery. Anybody old enough to, were you in that? And they did this thing where they put the little balls in the basket and they drew out all the numbers. My number was 30. That, that's a low number for those of you who know that. But apart from the lottery, there was another group of guys. And they just said, we see our duty and we're we're going to go ahead and we're going to enlist. Well, that's what these guys did. Some of the men, apart from the lottery, voluntarily committed to lead their families to relocate into Jerusalem. And they did this, again, not because it was easy, because it wasn't easy, but because they sensed it was the right thing to do. Now think with me for a minute. I said it wasn't easy for them to do that. Jerusalem was basically unpopulated. And if you'll remember back at the first of Nehemiah, when he, when he came through the city, it was filled with rubble. Now the temple was there. The, the gates and the walls were there, but still filled with rubble. There was a lot of work to do. They were leaving. Remember, they were an agrarian culture. And so they were leaving their livelihood. If they lived outside the city, they, they, had their, they had their jobs, they had their work, they had their farms, and 
and, and other things going on, and yet they volunteered and moved their families to a place where they really had to trust God for what they were going to do in terms of getting by and just having something to eat. That's getting out of your comfort zone. Their personal commitment embraced kingdom priorities, even if it meant moving. And here's something that you will know about yourself and about your family and about your church. You will know that revival, we've been talking about revival for the last three weeks, revival has come when you personally prioritize God's program over your personal desires. And some of you might be thinking, well, gosh, does that mean I have to get up and move someplace? Move from my home? No, not necessarily. But it could mean that in seeing kingdom priorities, I'm just going to throw out a couple of things. Again, never, ever, ever for guilt, but always what I always want you to respond to, not human pressure, but divine tension, okay? I am grateful for the volunteers that we have in this church. Praise God. I really, really am. But in your insert, in in your worship guide, on your insert, you see that we have continual needs. It's a rotating thing. We have needs for volunteers to step up. Maybe you're not at a season of life where that can happen. Maybe you're not in a situation. I get it. But we will know when revival is here, when people step up, guided by the Holy Spirit, divine tension, not human pressure, and every need that we have is met. Did you hear Jim mention a few minutes ago that we're going to be praying over in the chapel? And uh, by the way, that's air conditioned, okay, in case you're wondering. And so at 5 o'clock, 5 to 6, in case you're wondering, and, and we start on time and we end on time, and we pray, we just pray. That's all we do. It's nothing glamorous. I don't preach. Jonathan does sing at the last, but... Uh, Uh, we we just meet for prayer. I I invite you to come to that. No human pressure. See, I'm smiling. Just if the Lord so leads. And we've got the Will Rogers back to school ministry opportunity tonight. I just thought I would mention that. That's what it means to have kingdom priorities over your own personal desires. That's just some of the things. And many, many more. You see, you and I really do have, we talked about this last week, but I've got to bring it back up. You and I have a stewardship. And I further believe that there is, there is absolutely no biblical teaching that says God saved you to sit. Maybe for a, maybe for a time. Again, season of life. You you seek the Lord about this, but God has saved you and has gifted you, and He wants you to be a part of the local assembly, wherever that is, and to plug in so that you are making a difference, not only being encouraged, but you are encouraging others 
in that local assembly. And then verses 4 and 6, and then we'll be ready to move on to the next one. I love this. I am so grateful, and, and here, here's an application for those of you who say, well, I, don't, I don't have that giftedness like you do or whatever or like this other person does. Listen, God has gifted you uniquely. Just find out what that is and get involved doing it. And I'm grateful for notable nobodies in his plan that he uses. Look at uh, verses 4 and, and verse 6. Because of all the names, I'm going to have to get my glasses so I can see what I'm reading. Okay, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah. Now, there's a name that we recognize, right? Fourth son of Abraham. I, I mean, of, of, of um, help me out. Yeah, Jacob. Okay, and then uh, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephathiah, son of Mahal, of the sons of Perez. Now, drop down with me to verse 6. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Now, we're going to come back to that term, valiant men. Does anybody remember the story of Perez? Notable nobodies. Listen. Perez, like some of us, was really never supposed to be here. I won't go into detail. You can read his story. It's kind of interesting that God stuck, it was God who did it, God stuck the story of Judah and Tamar, his Canaanite daughter-in-law, mm -hmm. and Perez in Genesis chapter 38, right in the middle of the story of Joseph. So you've got this incredible picture of Joseph who did things right and was by the book, and then all of a sudden, God inserts the story of Judah and Tamar and Perez, and you read it and you say, what in the world was God thinking? Here's what was God was thinking. He loves to use people who have made mistakes and who sinned against him. Now repentance and all of that is involved. Like I said, if you know the story and if you don't, you can go back and read it. But Perez never was supposed to be here. Conceived out of wedlock. Horrible, horrible thing. And yet, God used him. And if you don't recognize that name, Perez, not Paris, like the city, but Perez, P-E-R-E-Z, you don't recognize that name. He was one of the ancestors of King David and then ultimately one of the ancestors of the Messiah. And these kinds of things are here to remind us right here in this list of 176 names. Look who pops out. Perez. And that's why it's important when you come to chapter 11 of, of a book of Nehemiah, in your quiet time, don't just skip over to chapter 13. Read through it quickly, and you may discover something that really speaks to your heart. I am so glad, personally, that God uses people who weren't supposed to be here and who are notable 
nobodies. Isn't that what Paul said? First Corinthians, three slides. I, I just wanted to get the whole thing out there. You know these verses. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love the Word of God and how it tells me that God brings together everybody who's a nobody to be something for the one who is the somebody. Let's move on to the second application. Leaders are mighty men of valor who perform, watch this, holy housework. Okay, words chosen very specifically. Mighty men of valor. Now, this, this shows up three times in this passage. Here's why, and again, here's what you're going to miss if you don't read through a, a passage like chapter 11. Three times. Valiant men, men of valor, mighty men of valor. It's in there. Basically, what this describes is warriors. They were military men. They were men of courage who could face danger with firmness and bravery. These men worked in and around the temple. You're going to find that. Two different places. They worked in the temple. They worked around the temple. That's in verse 12 and verse 16. What does a mighty man of valor look like? Okay, guys, are you ready? You look through Scripture, and here's what you're going to find. I pulled out several different characters. A mighty man of valor puts God and his mission first. He's fiercely loyal. He takes care of his responsibilities. And I'm thinking specifically of a mighty man of valor named Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, was betrayed. But he was still a mighty man of valor. To a mighty man of valor, guys, are you listening to this? No task is too big and no task is too small. I'll just have you later, always hesitate to do this because I know you're going to look right now at the illustration that was shared by uh, uh, E.M. Bounds, a man who wrote about prayer many years ago, but he shared about the two angels given the two different tasks and really it doesn't matter whether the task is big or the task is small, the only thing that matters is who gave the task. So no task too big and small, One of the weak, out of weakness he becomes strong. Who do you think I was thinking of there? Gideon, almighty oh, man of valor. He clings to the sword, the sword of God's word. When everyone around him is doing what is right in his own eyes. I was thinking of Eleazar, 
there. Whether it's defeating an army of Philistines or killing a lion in a pit on a snowy day, hand-to-hand combat, or defeating Goliath's brother or just getting a cup of cold water for their leader, these men are ready to do what it takes. All right. Men, fathers, husbands, grandfathers, I'm not finished yet, okay? Let's read a little bit further, and let's go to the quote by Vodibachum. I'm going to read that. You got that? Vodi has written some really, really good stuff about uh, men and about leadership and about fathers and about fatherless households. And uh, because he grew up in one. But Vodibachum said these things. There are some things a man simply must be before he is qualified to assume the role of a Christian husband. For instance, he must be a Christian. Those verses are there for you to look up a little bit later. He must be committed to biblical headship. He must welcome children. He must be a suitable priest, protector, and provider. A man who does not possess or at least show strong signs of these and other basic characteristics does not meet the basic job description laid down for husbands in the Bible. And then I want to quote Errol Hulse about being the kind of husband that we need to be. Headship is not a ticket to privilege, but a charge to responsibility. It is not a tyranny, but leadership based on love. I've been guilty of internally thinking, Lord, I'll do it, but but just not right now. I'll I'll do it tomorrow. I'll I'll do it when I feel like it. One of the biggest things I hear today in terms of of people waiting to do something in church or, or whatever the case may be is asking the question, is it going to be fun? In minutes, it's about this, mobilizing for ministry and putting God's program before our own. And I've really laid it on you today because I love you enough to say that these things need to be the focus of any man who follows Christ. You know, in fact, really, all we're talking about here, putting God's program before our own, Isn't that basic Christ-likeness? Isn't that having this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on the cross. He left his comfort zone to come to a place much like Jerusalem that was not pleasant. It held no fun and ultimately he got himself crucified for it. Now men, by the way, I'm going to come back with a big dose of the gospel at the end. So for those of you who take preaching and take the Word of God very seriously and you're feeling like this about right now, your heads are going to be lifted when we come to the gospel. And together we make those gospel affirmations when we come to the conclusion. Let's go on to the third application growing out of this passage of Scripture. All right, this is all about leaders. You're saying, wow, Pastor, you got all that from a list of names? Yeah. If you look, you're going to see this. Now, whoa, here's something that is so, oh, I, I just think this is so cool, and I see this every week, and I'm so glad for it when I see our kids in, in, in church. Leaders lead in worship by praying singing and giving thanks. And I've given the scriptural references right there. Leaders lead in worship. Leaders lead in worship. By the way, this is not changing gears. Worship is what warriors do. It's what mighty men of valor do. Someone said worship is warfare. And I think that the Bible bears that out. And when I look around and I see the children, sometimes they're over here, but sometimes they're right with you, and their daddy is there. And you may not realize it, dads, but from time to time, between coloring and changing their books, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about your kids. They're glancing up to see what daddy's doing. They're watching to see if you're singing. And during the sermon, they're watching to see if you're on your phone checking your email or if you're listening and, and, and writing, no, I don't know, but if you're engaged in what God is saying through a weak Preacher from the Word of God, and they're watching. I, 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 I just, uh, your grandkids are watching. You, you may not realize that, but they are. I, I had a come to Jesus moment years ago when my daughter Amy and I were talking, and she was college age, and we were having a conversation one day, and she said, Dad, I, I want you to know that um, I watch your eyes when a pretty girl walks by. And my eyes got big at that moment. I kind of swallowed hard. She said, you know... Some of the guys that I date and that I'm around, they call themselves Christians, but I watch their eyes when a pretty girl walks by. 
And so for a while, I've been watching your eyes. Now, guys, you've got to know this is by God's grace. This is by God's grace. And she said, I've, I've noticed that sometimes your eyes will do this and then they'll snap back forward, almost like you're purposely looking away. And I said, honey, I am. And I don't, I, I don't know, our kids watch us all the time, but boy, in worship, in this time together, corporate worship, our little ones are watching us in our praying, in our singing, in our giving thanks. They're watching us on a daily basis. If they get up early enough, are, are they seeing us with our Bibles open? Are they hearing us pray for them and for others? Worship is warfare. Uh, a, couple, a couple of just stories you might, I, I thought of these and I thought these are really good. Uh, Joshua at one time encountered the Lord and here was his attitude when Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing b- before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Well, Joshua knew immediately who this was. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he immediately knew it was the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord pre-incarnate manifestation. No. He just said no. You don't get it. It's not a us against them. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face. That's what we ought to do, at least in our heart of hearts, and it ought to show forth fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and saying, what does my Lord say to his servant? Men, boy, with a posture like that, revival would come. And then one more really good story out of the life of Jehoshaphat. Not going to read the whole thing, but I will read a little bit of that. Do you remember the story of Jehoshaphat? After the Moabites, the Ammonites, with some of the Minuites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. Now, the reason I put this in here, the same names are found in Nehemiah the son of Benahiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah. His name shows up four times in in Nehemiah 11. A Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judea, all Judah and its inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. When he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed... Now, watch this. Here's why I shared this story. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord. And you find people in Nehemiah 11 that were appointed to sing for the Lord. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise Him in holy attire as they went before the army. Now, 
I don't know that two other times in history a great general has put the choir in front of the army. But Jehoshaphat did because he knew something unique about the people of God that worship is warfare. And because they were worshiping the Lord God Almighty, it says that he routed, God routed their enemies before him. Last thing, leaders of the gatekeepers. Okay, guys, here's another, I'm going to lay it on you again. By the way, I, you know, one finger out, three fingers pointed toward me. This is laid on me big time. But you guys, leaders, are the gatekeepers. Gatekeepers were essential to the security of the city. I studied a little bit about gatekeepers. They were stationed as watchers and guardians at the gates to protect the people from outside invaders. And I just, you may think this is goofy, but I, had, I just had a, an insight that these gatekeepers were like Jedi. Jewish, I mean, they were stationed to guard and to protect, and that's exactly what leaders are to do today, leaders in the church. Paul met with the elders. He said, look, guys, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the flock of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Why? Why? Why is it important that, that I am aware not only of what God's Word says, but what's going on in the world and our elders and the people who've been appointed to teach. Because Paul said it, and this wasn't just for the people in Ephesus in that day, it's for today and for all time. I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in. They're not going to spare the flock. And then he adds some more, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples unto themselves. And that's what leaders are to do. That's what mighty men of valor are to do. That's what you and I are to do, first of all, in our own families, first of all, in our own lives. Set a watch. Be a shepherd over your own heart with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Men, be a shepherd over your own families. The church of God, other believers, generations to come. Now, here's the upshot of this. Wow, where, where, do, we get the, where do we get the chops to do this? Because in myself, I don't have them. You get them from the gospel. You get them from the ultimate gatekeeper, whose name is Jesus. And he said in John chapter 10, 10, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out, and they will find pasture. And then he tells us something very, very important to do, and this is, a, this is the gospel. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and there are many people on it that leads to destruction. And those who enter by that gate, the wide gate, they are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
So we come to the end of a message on Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 on through verse 26, and we learn about leadership, but the, the, the only way to be a leader is to get the right start and to come through the narrow gate. Have you ever been to a funeral where they spoke glowingly of the person who had gone on? And, and I, I get that, and I think that's appropriate. But have you ever been to a funeral like that where never once they mentioned anything other than his good works or her good works? Where they never mentioned Jesus Christ? They never mentioned the fact that even though we do good things, we are sinners before a holy God and we need a Savior. And that's a great tragedy. And it's one thing to say that about a funeral service. It's another thing to say that to a group of people gathered here in a church service listening to the gospel. Because if Jesus is the ultimate gatekeeper, then someday each one, each one of you, this is not just preacher talk, every person in this room is going to stand, every person, stand before the gatekeeper. Some of you might even say, Lord, Lord, let me in. And he'll say, no, even though you thought you were doing the will of the Father. You might even say, well, didn't we preach? Didn't we do spiritual things like cast out demons? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And what's he going to say? He's going to say, you missed the point. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I, I just wonder how many on that day will say to the Lord, Lord, there must be some mistake. I did the best I could, and that's good that you've done the best you could. Men, we, we talked about doing the best we could today, but ultimately, bottom line, it depends on your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Every good work that you do will grow out of that relationship, not make you approved for that relationship. And so today, with all that's been said about leadership, I lay before you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for sinners all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And through confession and repentance of sin and believing in Jesus and His finished work on the cross, we can enter into that relationship with the Father and on that day hear Him say, enter in to the joy of your Master. Father, I thank you that your gospel is clear. I thank you that you speak to us through obscure passages, just like Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12. 
Lord, I pray that we would take in what we have heard today, particularly the gospel message, and then out of that would flow the fruit of changed lives. God, I know that there are men who are members of this church who need to understand what the leadership, spiritual leadership in their family looks like, and then to depend upon the power of your Holy Spirit to do that. So I pray that from this day forward, we would make that commitment. We've been talking about rededication the last couple of weeks. I pray that today would be a major change, an opportunity for doing things differently than the way we've been doing it in the past, perhaps just getting by, not doing anything really good or bad. But Father, you have so much more for the body of Christ. So I pray, first of all, that anyone who has not known Jesus up until this moment would profess faith in him, turn from their sins, turn to Jesus Christ, and be saved to the uttermost. And I pray that those of us who know you, who are walking with you, growing in our sanctification, would take another step in that direction today. So we thank you, Lord, for this time of worship, and as we conclude these moments, we pray that we would give to you our all because you have given your all to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.